halfway through the Studio 60 season, um, they were they were downsizing the staff and had lost a couple of writers. And he called us and said, what are you doing tomorrow? And we we're like, uh, I don't know. We're, like, we're going to our shitty jobs and getting paid. I don't know. What are you doing yeah. tomorrow? And, um, and he said, I need you to interview with, with Aaron Sorkin tomorrow. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Screenwriter Survival Guide. Today on the show, I am chatting with Dara Resnick, a wickedly talented screenwriter who's worked on a variety of award-winning shows from Daredevil to Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. She is also the showrunner and co-creator of the Apple TV Plus series Home Before Dark, and her new show, The Horror of Dolores Roach, was recently picked up by Amazon Studios. Without further ado, Dara, welcome to Screenwriter Survival Guide. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I always start off with your story as a writer. So what inspired you to join the business? And then how did you start down the path of turning your inspiration into a career? Uh, I like to say that writing was the thing that kept tapping me on the shoulder and mm-hmm. I kept being like, leave me alone. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in New York City. I wanted to act because that was a thing that, you know, you saw when you looked on screen you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I want to do this. So therefore I want to be an actor. And growing up in New York City, there's tons of theater. So I studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater for several years and realized pretty quickly I have just about zero talent <laughs> in that department. Um, but I was really good at business. So I went huh. to Tufts University. I got a degree in economics at Tufts University, which made my Jewish parents way happier than <laughs> like Carnegie Mellon or Juilliard or something like that. And, um, and while I was there, I realized that there was a potential to sort of take this love of theater and love of acting and love of creativity and also merge that with business. And I discovered there was a program at USC called the Peter Stork Producing mm-hmm. Program. Uh, that took things like your GRE scores, which I was always a high score into mm. account, took your GPA into account. I always mm. had high GPA scores um, and took your resume. And during the summers, I was interning for Jim Henson. I was also a PA on Bear in the Big mm-hmm. Blue House. And I was sort of constantly trying to figure out, like, what is my in to this going to be? And then when I was at the Peter Stork Producing Program, started reading all of these scripts because I was mm-hmm. uh, part of the program is to read scripts, but mm-hmm. also... I was at the uh, the United Talent Agency in the mailroom, and part of your job is to read and do coverage, which is when right. if the agents don't have time to read, they read your summary, they read your opinion of it. And I was reading all these scripts by people who were represented, and I thought, I can do this. So, um, so I started writing, and I actually started writing at first with a partner who became my husband and is now my ex-husband. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated, and <laughs> I'm happy to get into it if you want to know more. <laughs> But um, but writing just sort of kept tapping me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. I was never not a writer. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. I think I, I think I was almost the same way, except I never, you know, maybe as a kid, I was really into like, oh, maybe I'll be an actor or whatever. But I think for me, it was directing. And mm-hmm. then because that's kind of, you know, for me, I knew I was behind the scenes. No, I wanted to kind of craft the, the film. But then I realized, oh, I don't like this at all. When I yeah. tried directing, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. This is, you never sleep. You're all, you're, everything's on you. It, it, you always, you look at the the finished product. And you're like, oh, wow, that, that's what I made. Like it's, um, there's so much about directing that I'm just not into. So I've kind of went, turned to writing um, again. What's also interesting is it seems almost like you, you did the opposite of a lot of writers where a lot of writers are um, super, 
they're not good test scorers. They don't have high GPAs. And they're like, okay, what's the way that I can get into school without those? I'm going to do writing. And you're like, okay, wait, no, I need a program that's going to take my GRE scores and my GPA into account. Totally. Because I I honestly didn't know if I had enough talent as a writer, but Mm -hmm. like I said, it had followed me my whole life. I actually found recently, I was like back home in New York City and I, Mm -hmm. my parents were like, please get rid of all of this stuff from high school. (laughs) You're 43. It's time for you to to get rid of this. So, So I was looking into one of these boxes and I found this um I had done some sort of math project where I had figured out what the salary for a writer would be mm-hmm. and what kind of life I could lead if I was making you know the money that a writer makes right I clearly must have done that math project and been like oh that's a terrible idea I should <laughs> not I should not do that I should do like the business side of things right. but you know one of the reasons I think I decided to segue yeah I, I had done journalism and stuff. I had, I worked at Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. I, um, I had been the, the editor of my paper. Like there's a lot of that sort of journalism background that I had mm-hmm. as well. I think once I realized that I could pivot into something that pays really well, pays right. and could be fun and mm-hmm. could use sort of the business part of my mind, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, now I know what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I get that. There's a lot of this like starving artist idea. And I think that that's one of the intrigues of TV for me is like, oh, well, there's money there. And, and also creativity. And you get to move much faster. I mean, it's obviously changing as things are being block shot, but you can still you there's a lot you're moving a lot faster. You're actually producing things instead of working on stuff for years and years and years. And never that's right. And I, I think it has changed a little bit. I mean, I do miss sometimes I say I miss the network days of like, you know, you knew your pitch season was over the summer and mm-hmm. into September and October, you wrote your pilot, they decided on your pilot, you shot your pilot, and then mm-hmm. you knew whether you were going to like be on a show or making something by May. And then mm-hmm. that was and then it started all over again. Um, I miss that kind of the, that machine to some extent. Mm-hmm. Streaming doesn't have that kind of machine, but the pro of it is that you can do so many more things than right. you used to do when it was just mm-hmm. network television. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons to both. Yeah. So do you remember the first thing you were paid to write? Um, I, re- I mean, the first thing I was paid to write as a journalist or the first thing I was paid to as write- a writer, as a screenwriter, screenwriter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The first thing that we, my, my, uh, writing partner and I were, were paid to write was a, a movie that I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying out loud in, in public, but it was a movie called Legally Blondes. Okay. <laughs> and it was the third installment of the Legally Blondes series straight uh-huh. to DVD for MGM. Yeah. And um, it starred these twins who were on like the sweet life with Zach and Cody on the okay. channel. And they were supposed to be like Elle Woods' little cousins. And okay. it was like a sort of within the realm of Legally Blonde, but like you never actually see Reese right, right. or anything right, like right. that. And um, we wrote that uh, we wrote that right before we got staffed on Studio 60 in the sense of mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so for any new writers out there who are just starting their first couple of projects what are some of the like the common mistakes you've seen new writers make on their first couple of projects oh my goodness well the first thing I see the first mistake I see writers make is is writing the same thing for 10 years or writing the same Mm. thing for years and years and not Mm. moving on I think you know you're your own factory if you don't have a product to sell you have nothing to sell you can't make a living you can't run a business that way Mm -hmm. and I do think to some extent this is a volume business it's a business of ideas obviously the script quality matters greatly, mm-hmm. but if you have a great script quality on an idea that nobody's really interested in, sure, it'll get you a lot of meetings. It'll get you in the mm-hmm. door. You get to do what they call before in the pre-pandemic days, they called it the water bottle mm-hmm. tour. 
I have pictures literally of like my feet just covered <laughs> with plastic water bottles in my car. <laughs> you know, those great scripts, even if nobody wants them, can get you a lot mm-hmm. of, of meetings and, and open a lot of doors. But you have to have stuff to sell. Mm-hmm. And you have to have more than one idea. You have to show people that you're mm-hmm. a real writer doesn't just write one script. A real mm-hmm. writer. My favorite uh, quote recently that I'm going to completely botch was from Six with Rome. And it's uh, Jonathan Larson's agent, who's played by Judith Light, calls him to tell him the news that, yeah, the play reading went really well, but nobody's buying it. Mm. And he says, what? And I've been working on this for eight years. What am I going to do now? And she picks up the phone. She says, you write the next one. And then you write another one mm-hmm. and on and on. And that's yeah. what it is to be a writer. And mm-hmm. it literally made me cry because I felt so seen. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's what it is. And I think yeah. a lot of young writers, including obviously young Jonathan Larson, uh, may he rest in peace, was not, were not able early on to mm-hmm. pump out that volume of work. Gotcha. Yeah, no, yeah, makes sense. I mean, yeah, I think I, 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 I hear like a lot of people in writing groups and stuff who just like, they focus on one thing. And not only is that not good for your career, it just seems so boring. Like, it's just, it's like, I can, after like, like 10 passes of a script, I'm like, okay, that's, that's enough for me for a while. Like I need to put this in a drawer and I can take it out a year from now, maybe, but like, yeah, absolutely. That's another, that's another tip that I would give is, okay, you've been working on this for X number of months or years, take it, put it away approach it with fresh eyes after you've done something else, you learn something else. You learn something from every script, even if it's what not to do on the next mm-hmm. one. And then when you reemerge from that project and into the last one, you're like, oh, I now see so mm-hmm. obviously what was unclear to me because I was so inside this earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. Um, so let's talk about studio 60. So you're, this is basically your first job. I mean, you have, you have a legally blondes before that, but, um, but you're working with some of the people who are at like once in a generation talent, height of their powers. What is that like being a, uh, a f- basically first time screenwriter coming into that environment? And how do you, how do you function and do your job? Um, and what is your job when relating to those, when relating to those kind of you know, like, savants like Aaron yeah. Sorkin? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was like an absolute, I still sort of can't believe that my first staff writing job was for Aaron Sorkin. Like, that's like, <laughs> weird, like sometimes I'm like, whose life am I talking about? Oh, that was, yeah. okay, I guess I did that. That's crazy. Um, you know, he's an icon. He's incredibly talented. Mm-hmm. It was a dream job. He was wonderful to, to us, to, to me and my writing partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we went in, it was, it was a cool story actually. And again, probably like really good advice for people. If this is a podcast where people are trying to figure out how they're going to break in, mm-hmm. you know, one of my big pieces of advice is always like, get to know like literally everybody you can like volunteer mm-hmm. on films and, and enter all the festivals and get jobs for people who are like even business adjacent. Cause mm-hmm. my, my, my ex-partner had worked for this guy, Mark Goffman. If you look him up, he's like a big shot now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark Goffman had worked on the West Wing and he had made a, a little film that my ex-partner had been like a, like a PA on, like an intern, mm-hmm. and stayed in touch with him. And he, that guy, Mark had given us a ton of notes on our short film mm-hmm. and had given us notes on scripts. And halfway through the Studio 60 season, um, they were they were downsizing the staff and had lost a couple of writers. And he called us and said, what are you doing tomorrow? And we we're like, uh, I don't we're like we're going to our shitty jobs and getting paid. I don't know. What are you doing? Yeah. Tomorrow? And, um, and he said, I need you to interview with, with Aaron Sorkin tomorrow. Whoa. And um, we were like, what? And um, I mean, fortunately for us, like we were legitimate. It's not like that thing where you lie and say you're a fan of someone and then you have to like. Right 
binge something that like you never yeah, had yeah. binging. We were already completely up on the show. Mm-hmm. We binged all of his work because we just love his work. Right. And we went in and um I took a bit of a risk and I said, Mr. Sorkin, I know how many people you're interviewing for this job, but I can assure you that if you hire us, nobody will work harder. We'll be there every day mm-hmm. before you come in and we'll be there after you leave. And he sort of paused. I was, it was really, it was a risk because I wouldn't necessarily recommend that anybody do that in a hmm. meeting. Um, Cause it's a little bit, you know, as, as my mom would say, that's chutzpah. But um, hmm. he, he sort of smiled his wry smile and he said, I don't doubt that. And um, he hired us. Hmm. And, you know, the thing that was actually really great about that room and the way that, I don't know if he still runs his rooms this way, but I know he did then mm-hmm. is that you write, you don't even write in final draft, you write in memo form. And, huh. and so, yeah, so he sits at the front of the table every day and the head of the table in the conference room and you're pitching ideas, right? You're pitching like, mm-hmm. like, a, you know, Amanda Pete was pregnant at the time. So it was like, how, what are we going to do about the pregnancy and how are we going to put that in a story? And it was like pitch after pitch about that mm-hmm. or pitch after pitch about Nate Cordry's brother who was in Afghanistan or how Matthew Perry's, you know, his character's drug problem was, was going to go down. Mm-hmm. And he either says like, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. He's very direct. I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Every job since has been a rude awakening because <laughs> I just really appreciate someone saying yes or no. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then he sends you off to write a memo. And what mm-hmm. you write in the memo is to Aaron Sorkin from Dara Resnick. And it's here's basically a paragraph of like what the story would be, huh. of what you just okayed. You send that memo to him. He reads those overnight. He gathers everybody again at the conference room table in the morning. He passes it back and either says, I don't like it do it again, but do it like this, or I love it, now make it a scene. So if he says, okay, now make it a scene, then you go back to your office. Again, you're in a Word doc. And now you're doing basically a small play, a short play. And it's a short play of what that scene, what the collection of scenes would be. So it's, you know, if I was writing a scene between Dara and Sam, by the way, Sam's my sister's name, very fond of the name. (laughs) Um, It'd be Dara, colon, you know, uh, I have to go to Afghanistan to rescue my brother, Sam mm. Colin, why would you have to do that? And it would, what you, and what was so great about that education was he didn't want you to try to be Aaron Sorkin. He mm. wanted you to be Dara. He wanted you to be Sam and mm-hmm. he wanted you to find the cleanest way through the scene point a, mm. and then what's the turn and point B. And it okay. really taught me as a young writer, not to get completely locked up and like making it pretty and falling in love with my words and how clever I am. What's the cleanest way through this? Real estate and television is valuable. It's, it's, it's expensive mm-hmm. because every, for every minute you're on screen, you're spending money. Right. So, so the idea that now I always have this skill of being able to look, look at my scenes and go, does this need to be here? What's the fastest way from point A to point B? Sometimes you want to be florid. Mm-hmm. Once you're the boss, you get to decide whether you're going right. to do that. <laughs> but it's really amazing to, as a young writer, I've had the skill set to look at a scene and be as brutal as possible about mm-hmm. how to write it. Hmm. So it sounds like you guys are almost putting up the foundation and then he is making the room pretty. That's right. That's kind That's of right. the, the idea behind his shows. Scenes, he'd take the scenes and the memos and I'd look at it and, you know, they would, he'd spread them out on his desk and he'd move them around. He'd figure mm-hmm. out what order they were going to go in. And then he mm-hmm. would be the one to officially write the script, which is, you know, yeah. So every script, he writes every script for He yeah. writes every script. I don't know if that's still true. It was yeah. true then. Um, and it was true. I, I believe it was also true on a lot of the West mm-hmm. Wing. I assume it was true on Sports Night. Um, but, you know, and as a young writer, it's the world's best education in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, how do you navigate that as a young writer? I just think, look, 
some people have this ability and some people don't. For people who don't, I think you have to find an ally who can help you. But mm-hmm. I think we read the room relatively, me and my, my ex-partner read the room mm-hmm. relatively well. And, and I, I like to say to young writers, you know, go in every day knowing that you have to land one great pitch. Huh. One thing that shows the showrunners and the, the higher ups that you really deserve to be there and that you're mm-hmm. listening, you're paying attention, you're learning. But don't be the person that when everybody's debating, the upper levels are debating something, don't be the person that chimes in unless you really have something important mm-hmm. to say. What mm-hmm. you want to do is be the stealth bomber who, when everybody is sort of, you know, stuck on something, mm-hmm. has been noodling on or writing down or thinking about something, mm-hmm. and then comes in, like, you know, just drops your thing and runs away. Huh. You have a right on, on my show that I'm, that I'm co-show running with, with the creator, Aaron Mark. We have a, a young writer named Mariah Wilson, who this is her first staff writing job. And mm-hmm. she has aced that on mm. every single day we've been in the room. It's really been sort of an impressive feat. Mm. So I would just say, you know, e- even if you can't read the room, just know that one great pitch a day is important, especially if it's a comedy room, you probably need a few more comedy mm-hmm. rooms right. or high, high pitch volume. Uh-huh. Um, and, and try not to interrupt when the folks who've been doing this for mm-hmm. a decade have, you know, are, are sort of wrapped up in trying to solve a story problem. Yeah. And do you find that's a, something a lot of young writers struggle with? Because I understand the, the urge to be like, oh, I, I need to prove myself that I belong here. So I'm going to speak every chance I get. Yeah, I, I do think do. that that's, I mean, look, I've also seen that backfire. I know someone, I was on a show once where somebody who was younger got let go because I thought she was doing a great job at doing that. And the showrunner clearly didn't think that. The showrunner wanted her to be pitching more. Huh. Um, funny enough, that showrunner hired her again on a different show. So, <laughs> so you know, I'll, I'll whatever. we all just see each other on the way up and down. Uh-huh. Um, but I do, I always tell young writers that like, staff writer is almost the best moment of your whole career. Hmm. Because there's so little expectation on you. The showrunner is never looking at the staff writer to save the show. Like right. Of all the people that you're looking at in the room to go like, hey, help me out. You're not mm-hmm. looking at the least experienced person in the room. Right. You're looking at the folks who are mid-level and above and going, hey, help me out here. So hmm. in some ways, it's the greatest learning experience because you're no longer taking notes. You're no longer the assistant. You're focused right. on the work. You could really be listening and taking everything in hmm. and then learn how to, how to do the pitching and how to succeed at that job. Hmm. That's interesting. So you've talked about your writing with a partner a lot. Now I've written a couple of projects with a partner um, and it sounds like you're no longer writing with a partner. So can you talk about the kind of the, the positives of, of writing with a partner and the negatives, yeah. namely half the pay, but other than that. <laughs> totally. I mean, look, the, the, it's mostly positives. Um, the, the greatest thing of it is it's so funny. I was on a panel earlier today at UC Riverside where this mm-hmm. question came up and um another person who's currently in a writing team said language that me and my ex-partner used to say all the time, which mm-hmm. is it's so nice after like a sort of a crazy notes caller or a crazy day or a crazy, whatever, closing the door and going, that was crazy, right? It wasn't just me. <laughs> and having like person not just say it's crazy, but also have a kind of honesty with someone who can look mm-hmm. at you and go, no, you acted crazy. That huh. was not crazy. Right. Um, so that that's a big perk. I think also being able to do twice the work, being able to mm. split a script and say, okay, you write, you work on our TV project today and I'll work on our feature project mm-hmm. and then we swap or let's get this script done really quickly. We'll split it in mm-hmm. half, pound it out, have that done and then go work on another project. Um, it's great. I, look, one of the reasons I love TV writing over feature writing is I love the, the collective brain of TV mm. writing. I love a writer's room. I love sitting with smart people and working a problem mm. until we find something that isn't just 
the low hanging fruit first idea theater mm-hmm. idea. I love digging deep and it's really, really hard to do that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of great stuff about having a writing partner. I think in particular, mm-hmm. when you're first starting out, it, it's almost imperative. If you don't have a writing partner, you at least have to have like somebody else that you can talk story problems through. Right. Um, you know, in terms of the cons, obviously, yes, half a paycheck. <laughs> On some level, it can be creatively stifling for some people at a certain mm. point. I think it's really, really important for writing partners to have incredibly strong communication, incredibly mm. honest communication. I've seen writing partnerships I've seen go awry. It almost always comes from a place of people not communicating well in terms of what they, where they want their career to go, what they want to be working on, how they feel like their partner's acting in a room or in a meeting, mm-hmm. you know, whether each person is pulling their own weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two, two close friends of mine wrote a great book called The 80-80 Marriage. And oh. I actually think that that is also- 80-80 Isn't that great? It's basically each person is always yeah. doing more than 50%. Uh-huh. Keeps everybody happy. Mm-hmm. I honestly think writing partnerships should function the same hmm. way. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I wrote a feature that I wrote last year that I wrote it with the director and he's now producing it right now. But um, he what, what I found so great about that experience, because I usually write solo, was that he's really good at the big set pieces. He's really good at the, the huge kind of the scope, the big scope of the project. And I necessarily usually when left to my own devices, for me, that ends up just going in a very cliche direction. It ends up going based on other films I've seen, and it's not organic. But he, his dialogue sounds nothing like human beings, <laughs> like nothing whatsoever. I'm really good at dialogue. And so when you have, I think, people who can kind of like match each other like that, where one person's really good at these big picture arcs and the other person's really good at the small. Mm-hmm. And diagram is what you're looking okay. for. You know what okay, I mean? Yeah. Like you're saying like your, your dialogue over here. He's good at big picture ideas uh-huh. and you both love this particular subject matter. Right. You're looking at the huh. Venn diagram. You don't want this. You want this. That's right. the best right partnership. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Um, all right. So I often talk with like well-established writers who have very spotty IMDb pages. Um, they'll like work on a show and then they'll have no credits for several years, but you've been producing projects pretty consistently since your first job. Um, so how do you keep that momentum going? What is your, what's your process for that? Or is it just dumb luck? Um, I mean, it is luck, but I like to, I really do look, I think there's a certain amount of privilege involved. I feel really, really lucky. Like I have been able to make, I, I graduated school without debt. Mm. Um, and so I was able to make creative decisions and really pursue a creative life, knowing that I didn't have $200,000 mm-hmm. of school debt on my back. So I think that that's part of it. I also really do believe that luck is opportunity, meaning preparation. Mm. I think you know, I, I've had the most, I'll tell you one quick lucky story and then segue back into, was it just dumb luck? Mm-hmm. The first script that we actually ever sold, but this is different because we weren't writing partners and I was not the writer on it at the time, mm-hmm. was, a, was a movie called Sydney White, which was an Amanda Bynes movie about Snow White going to college and joining a fraternity with seven dorks. Okay. My first like cool creative job in California after I graduated grad school was um, for the director of a Cinderella story named Mark Rossman, mm-hmm. and which was Hillary Duff. It's an update of a Cinderella story. And uh, I, I mentioned to Mark, like, oh, I own this. I sort of optioned this script that, you know, my, my partner wrote. And what do you think? And he was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, okay. So a few months later, out of nowhere, the producer comes out of his office and he stretches and he says, I have a great idea for a sequel to a Cinderella story. It's called <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dorks. And she goes to college <laughs> with a fraternity with seven dorks. 
And I said, I own that script already. And he said, no, I just came up with it in my office. And I said, no, no, I own it. And I like took it out of my desk and I begged him to read it. And, um, and I said, look, if you just, just read it, I mean, that's another good lesson, by the way, always ask for the thing. And then if the person says no, just promise mm. you'll never bring it up again. I think okay. that's, that's always the, mm. that's always the, the trick for like the ask is like ask once and then run away. So I said, please, please just read it. If you don't like it, I'll never talk about it again. And two months later, we sold it to Warner Brothers and it did become, it ultimately went to Universal and movie. Hmm. Um, but, but I like to say that, yes, that was luck. I mean, that's the kind of luck that you can't possibly recreate. Now, that being mm. said, we sold that. And then we didn't, we weren't working writers for several more years mm-hmm. after that. We kept nice. our day jobs. We kept writing. We kept working. I also fully believe that had we not sold that script, we were both people who were constantly out there meeting people. I know that's mm-hmm. a little harder in a pandemic. Uh-huh. I'm hoping that, you know, at some point the pandemic will ease a little bit and we'll all be back out there meeting people. But mm-hmm. having jobs in the business or business adjacent, doing screenwriting competitions, you know, getting online and meeting other writers, all of those things, each one of those things is a door. And you don't mm-hmm. know at what point any one of those doors is going to crack open and you have to be ready mm-hmm. to like smash your way through it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what we did every chance that we got. I mean, right, it was also luck that Mark Goffman called us and said, are you free for Studio 60 mm-hmm. tomorrow? But if we hadn't done that several months before that, we almost got a job on the George Lopez show. Like mm-hmm. we had had enough almost at that point mm-hmm. to know that we were creating opportunities for the mm-hmm. luck to us. And we were prepared when that luck, when the, when the opportunity came. Mm. I love that. I love creating opportunities for the luck to find us. Yeah. I had a, I have a mentor who says luck is like a bus. There's always another one as long as you have the fare to get on. And yes, the fair is doing the work. It's the scripts. It's the networking. It's the, you know, being a good person. It's the reading scripts and all that, all the other work you do. And um, it's always there, but so many people don't have the fair. That's right. And it goes back to the same thing we were talking about, like writers write, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, just, you, you write another one and then you write yeah. the next one and that's what it is to be a writer. Mm-hmm. That script, that next work, anything that you're doing to further your career is that fair? Mm-hmm. So kind of speaking of this and, and about always producing new content, you know, I, I recently started work on my kind of first page writing assignment and it's taken just a lot of my creative energy. Um, and I can only imagine how that kind of um, compounds when you're, you know, staff writer and then I'm story editor, exec story editor, supervising producer, co-EP, and you're going up the, the, the ladder. So how do you balance whatever show you're currently working on or your show running with, with working on other scripts and continuing to push your personal stuff forward sure i mean well i'm a libra so i'm constantly looking for that (laughs) me too (laughs) (laughs) oh nice all my favorite people are libra um and and i think that for me what it comes down to is having time in your day that is specifically for your job right Mm -hmm. the thing that you're being paid for the job and a time when you put that away Mm-hmm. Even if it's like, I still have ideas. It's actually great. Frankly, if you put it away, you still have ideas. Mm-hmm. You got them down. You mm-hmm. know where you're starting the next time you pick it up. Great. And then you pick up the thing that you're doing because you love it. Or you pick up the thing like right now I'm on the horror of Dolores Roach. I'm co-showrunning that. And I love that, but I didn't create that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, it's something that my, my dear friend and colleague, Erin Merck created. Mm-hmm. So I'm also writing a pilot for Disney plus mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, putting the time aside to make sure that I'm looking at that pilot when, when I need to be and mm-hmm. spending the time to put my vision onto the page. 
And that's also true for all the other things I'm doing. I have stuff that I'm supervising. I have a book that I'm sort of writing just for fun for myself. It's, mm. it's sort of for me, it's the constant thing of what's, okay, this is paying the bills and this is really mm-hmm. great. I love, by the way, there's no better job to pay the bills with. I, that, right. <laughs> that I feel very strongly about. And at some point it is just a job when it starts to feel like a job you put it in the job box and then you make writing your hobby mm. again mm. and you, you bring the joy back to it. Hmm. And besides just like the projects that you're not being paid to do, how do you have any tips for how to reignite the spark of writing and to, to, to kind of reimmerse yourself in the, this is the hobby phase? That's a really good question. I mean, there's a couple of things. The first thing I think is taking breaks is imperative mm. to the creative process. And it's really hard for those of us who are type A and driven and want to do this <laughs> so badly and thinking like, but if I just work hard enough, but, right. but taking a break really does help is the same thing we were talking about putting a script away, right? Mm-hmm. Your brain is constantly doing work that you don't know about. That's mm-hmm. why we have these great ideas where we're in the shower or on a hike or you know, even just like hanging out and watching TV and mm-hmm. watching some other show gives us an idea about our own show. Um, so I think taking a break is, is a piece of that mm-hmm. because then you, you can find the joy in the work again when mm-hmm. you put it down. I also think watching a lot of stuff that you love, hmm. sometimes revisiting. There's a great Ira Glass video on YouTube. It's like two minutes long. I think if you look, if you Google like Ira Glass on creativity, it's really short. It's like a two minute thing that talks about how you have to do a tremendous body of work before you find your voice. And that what happens when you first come out, when you first start out, you have taste, but you don't know how to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that that's a big part of it too, is reminding yourself of what your taste was, reminding yourself of why you started doing the thing to mm-hmm. start with mm-hmm. is a huge piece of it. Um, I also think talking to other writers, right? Like getting sort of talking to other writers about things that are making you crazy, that are making you jam so that Mm -hmm. you can get those out and then just put them again, put it in a box Mm -hmm. so that you can rediscover that joy. Although I will say this, I say to my students, I teach at USC, Mm -hmm. I do say to my students, I have terrible news for you. You have ruined for yourself the one thing in life that you used to love the most. <laughs> and and by that, what I mean more than anything is not like, I mean, the business is wonderful. Like I said, I, mm-hmm. I love my job. But what happens for me anyway, and it probably, my guess is it happens for you, Sam, and probably people who are watching or listening to this, is once you start to do this, you start to see the matrix and you can't mm-hmm. find the matrix. And so you'll be watching something like, I'll watch Yellow Jackets, which is brilliant and was so much fun to watch. And the entire time I'm thinking, oh, that's how they did that. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so they set this up here and they paid it off here. Okay, that's interesting. It's very hard once mm-hmm. you know how to structure this, how to work it, mm-hmm. to pull yourself back out of seeing the matrix. Yeah. Yeah, no, for me it was it was uh Harry Potter was the was the movies and the books that made me kind of want to be a writer. They were the things that kind of really excited me. And and I've been recently doing a lot of driving because I've been taking a break from LA and I've been kind of doing a lot of I'm driving to Utah and I'm driving all over the place. So I've been listening to a lot of um Harry Potter on Audible and it's it's like that where I can no longer just watch. I'm like, oh, okay, so that's what that's supposed to set up. That's why this was here and that's why this scene was put in. And I went through and actually started listening to the scripts like listening to the, the audio of the script and just listening to that more. Why did they make that? Oh, that's why they made that change. That's why this wasn't a visual aspect. So they had to change the character that said that. And it's just fascinating, but it's also, it kind of ruins it as well. Um, or, 
maybe not ruins it, it creates a new experience for you. But it's a different experience than the mm-hmm. one you fell in love with, right? I mean, yeah. in some ways, it's the coolest thing in the world because you're like, mm-hmm. I understand something about Harry Potter that nobody right. <laughs> And then the other part of it is like, oh God, I used to just be able to like listen to Harry or watch yeah. Harry, yeah. Harry Potter. And you, you just can't do that anymore. Yeah. yeah, my family get really, they get like, I think kind of a lot of uh, families of writers probably have issues watching TV or films with writers because writers will either guess things early or they'll also always be talking about okay i wonder why they that did that there they had that beat there that doesn't make sense that's a weird piece oh totally. that makes sense and so it's like this constant monologue we keep up when we're watching totally and my sister <laughs> funny enough i have a younger sister who's the teacher and wants uh-huh. nothing to do with this business <laughs> calls me and says you ruined it for me because now i see the matrix so now yep. i can't unsee the matrix yeah i think one time i when we were on vacation i explained save the cat to my mom and ever since she'll like bring it up to me she'll like bring up oh so that's you know that's oh our god, dark night so of the great. soul I'm like, yes i did it oh my god amazing your mom's probably going to be a great screenwriter one day yeah exactly <laughs> so um how have you found your writing process change as you've spent more time in the industry and worked on shows and kind of changed your level and done different stuff in the industry I mean, the good news is it takes me less time um, than it used to. In some ways, it also takes me more time because, you know, I think whereas when I was a young writer, I did like a lot of the the story work was a little bit harder and that Mm -hmm. took more time, the structural stuff. And then I would write a script and I'd be like, and I'm a genius. (laughs) Send it in. And, you know, now I really don't send anything in until I read through it 850 times Mm -hmm. and gotten a lot of notes and tried to look at each scene and gone deeper than I thought I might be able to, to go to, uh, through. So, so that's a, a piece of it. I also think, you know, my process sort of constantly in terms of like the actual physical sitting down and how I go about it also constantly mm-hmm. just depending on like what's going on in my life for right? each. One of the things I like to talk to screenwriters about is yes, screenwriting is awesome. TV writing is awesome. Show writing is awesome. All those things are great. And you have to have a life. You mm-hmm. have to have, you don't have to, but like, it's great to have a significant another. It's great. I don't personally have one, but like, you know, have, try to date, mm-hmm. meet humans, have friends, have a community, have a child, mm-hmm. like spend time with your family. Um, and, and depending on what part of your life you're in, you know, if you're in a newlywed phase, you're going to want to be spending more time with this person. If you just had mm-hmm. a baby, you're going to be wanting to be spending time with that person. And you're going to be constantly, the good news about writing is it's portable and it's malleable to your lifestyle. So you, your process is going to change by definition of where you are in your mm-hmm. life. I happen to be right now in a really fortunate part of my life where I'm single. There's nobody romantically that's asking for my attention. Mm-hmm. It's a pandemic, so I don't see my friends very much. Um, and my daughter is 10 and like really self-sufficient. And I have a lot of time where I actually Mm. can sit down at a desk and write. But when she was a baby, my process was like, okay, I guess I'm going to nurse and I'm going to like sit on my laptop on the couch and like write Mm. a bunch of scenes over her head while I can't (laughs) know. So it's, it's a constantly changing process. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's something I, I, definitely struggle with because I think it has something to do with my personality and like I like to check things off boxes Mm -hmm. uh, off lists I usually you know when I was in LA and when I was you know working you know full-time on my career I would basically just I'd make sure to write you know x number of hours x number of pages per day every weekday that's it and then right now I'm taking a little bit of a break I'm in Utah I'm working at a ski mountain and I kind of I'm exhausted at the end of the day and I can get maybe three or four days a weekend where I get some writing done on a project and it is 
it's difficult for me to be like, okay, well, that's okay. My process is adapting and changing uh, because there's other reasons for, for doing this and making this change. Um, and at the end of the day, it might be helping, helping. And you're living your life. I mean, I like to say we don't have lives. We have nothing to write about. You have to, I think it's great that you left LA. I tell writers all the time that, especially if they have enough contacts and they know that they can come back mm-hmm. and those are people that they can get in touch with again. I think it's great when writers, I went, there was a moment where me and my partner, uh, I think it was after Studio 60 and Pushing Daisies. Hmm. Um, actually, it was maybe even during the writer's strike. We had talked about like doing a big backpacking trip down to South America. Mm-hmm. And ultimately we didn't for all kinds of reasons. That now looking back feels stupid because like right. we didn't have kids, we didn't have anyone depending on us. There yeah. were there were no jobs to have. Uh-huh. Like what a great adventure we could have had that would have been every single one of those experiences would have mm-hmm. been fodder for the next yeah. trip. So I think we all have to and should do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the you know that's the thing. I already especially like going and doing something completely like what I'm doing is so totally different from anything I would usually do or anything of the people I was, I was hanging out with in LA or the people I was surrounding myself with. And it's just so interesting to like meet new characters and meet new, have new experiences that then you can adapt. I'm already like have an idea for like a script about lift operators. And like, it's a whole, like these, yeah. these new ideas that, that come into your head when you just put yourself in a completely new situation. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about home before dark. Um, so how do you prepare? That was, that was your first show running position, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do you prepare for something like that? That's so completely different from right. I mean, there's writing in it, but there's so many other facets to it for, as well. show, for the show running. I mean, the, yeah. the, the good news is, you know, and this is changing and I don't really know. I, I think about it all the time as an issue. I feel really lucky because I came up, like I said, in the network system. Mm-hmm. So studio 60, 22 episodes, right? Pushing right. Daisies, 20, whatever episodes. Uh, then mistresses, 13 episodes, I think it was 13 episodes. Um, uh, castle was two mm-hmm. seasons of 23 episodes, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, and then of course, and then, and then shooter, which was cable and, and Jane, the Virgin, which was, yeah, all of those. I mean, Jane, mm-hmm. the Virgin was 22 episodes. Uh, shooter was a cable show. It was like 13 episodes. Uh, all in all of those situations, you're, it's basically an apprenticeship. Hmm. which is incredible. Um, particularly under, I would say under Brian Fuller and under Andrew Marlowe in particular, uh, Marlowe was who was who wrote and created Castle and, and mm-hmm. was the showrunner there. And he really empowered you to produce your own episode and be in post and learn mm-hmm. all of the facets of what it is to be a showrunner. Mm-hmm. And that's what network television was. It was, you know, when you have 22 episodes, it's so funny because I've had people tell me in stream, like, oh my God, like eight episodes is a lot. Like, <laughs> and the answer is you have to delegate at a certain mm-hmm. point, which means that the people underneath you are really learning how to do the show. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to, I think the first time I was like running a room uh, was, was on I Love Dick for Amazon. Mm-hmm. And that was, I felt very ready for that because mm-hmm. I'd been basically running the room when the grown up wasn't in the room for mm-hmm. several years at that point. Um, and then having done that and having all, like I said, been on set and been in post and doing all of those things and having had so many showrunners that I've worked under by the time I got to home before dark, I was very put me in. Mm-hmm. Code. Like I gotcha. was, 
I was very, very ready. It's funny because I had these two guys who were my number twos who I deeply adore. They just had a great show called Ordinary Joe on NBC, mm -hmm. uh, Garrett Lerner and Russell Friend. And they came up on how, like their big thing was they came up on House mm -hmm. and then they did Glee. And now, of course, they had their own show, but they mm -hmm. were also television veterans, a little bit older than me and uh, hadn't run their own show, but had seen, had helped other people run their shows. Hmm. And they'd given me this sort of pep talk before we started where they were like, it's going to be hard for you because everyone's at the end of the table is going to be looking at you to make the decision. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not going to find this. Don't worry, I'm not <laughs> hard at all. Um, but what, what the best part of it was for me, having grown up in television and not being, mm -hmm. for example, a, a screenwriter or a playwright who was first given that chance is that I knew what it was like to be sitting in that seat. Mm -hmm. I knew what it was like to be a staff writer or a story editor or a co-producer or a supervising mm -hmm. producer, all of those things. So it was, I knew that it was incumbent on me to make sure that all of those people were bringing their best to the room. Mm -hmm. Like the, the best part of my job now at this level of my career, and I, you know, God willing, I get to keep doing it, you know, is, is that I get to facilitate other people coming into a room and bringing their best and their vulnerability mm -hmm. and their creativity and having spent so much time in the room I felt very strongly and deeply that I knew how to do that and then of course I also knew how to do all the other parts of the job I knew how to help pick a department head I knew how to be on set and talk to actors I knew how to be in post like and mm -hmm. that's obviously the same for the horror of Dolores Roach what it is going to be a problem and I don't know how this is going to end up resolving mm -hmm. is that we now have a generation of writers that because they didn't come up in network mm -hmm. television will often you know ascend all the way to the rank of co-executive producer mm -hmm. or executive producer even and have never been on set a day in their life mm -hmm. have never spent a day in editing in their life that is gonna, just probably only of, exacerbated by covid <laughs> absolutely, absolutely yeah. because on my show one of the things i felt really strongly about we got very lucky we got an early season two pickup which meant mm -hmm. we could be in the writer's room and we got to keep those same writers on their mm -hmm. contracts mm -hmm. and we could send them as we shot season one up to vancouver to oversee their mm -hmm. episodes Mm -hmm. which for a couple of them was the first time and maybe the only time they ever have or ever will do that. And I had to mm -hmm. get a special dispensation from the WGA to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Because in theory, they were on season two contracts, not season one contracts. Right. But my argument with the WGA is you need to find ways to make sure that the next generation of writers does get trained to be a showrunner. Because like you said, mm -hmm. a lot of it is managerial um, right. and, and sort of organizational and, and requires skills that are not just about what happens in the page journal. Right. Yeah. Cause I assume like the WGA, they have a showrunner training program or something. Right. But, but that's not the in. same. Oh, really? So that's like, it's a, it's a lottery as well. It, it's a, well, it's a, or it's, they, application. They, they read your, it's application. They read your, huh. essay. then mm. they do like a one day thing. And I can assure you that you don't need, you don't learn everything you need to know about. Right. <laughs> that's not actually right. Um, and, and even then, like you said, even then, I don't think it's as good an education mm -hmm. as sitting actually... in a room till 11 o'clock at night with Andrew Marlowe to figure out mm -hmm. how to solve a problem that then I have to be on set for at six o'clock. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's difficult. It's one of those things we just don't, you know, just don't know yet. It's just gonna figure it out. So let's say you're staffing for um either a season three of home before dark or um season one of dolores roach i'm not sure if you've staffed yet for that so yeah. if a listener here were lucky enough to be meeting with you for that what are some things what are some of the things you are looking for and some of the kind of best things they can be doing and worst things they can be doing to give them get them a likelihood of getting a spot on your show that's a great question 
Um, first of all, I always tell people that they should write something that's in their voice. Mm-hmm. I am a, some showrunners, which there's a couple showrunners who are still different. I have a, I have a dear friend, uh, Rena Mamoon, who mostly prefers to read scripts of other people's shows so that she could see if they can match her voice, which hmm. is a totally great way to go. And I, I, I tend to look at those scripts secondarily mm-hmm. because as far as I'm concerned, I'm already a queer Jewish woman. I don't need 10 more queer Jewish women in the room. I need Mm -hmm. people who come from different lives Mm -hmm. and different backgrounds and have different voices because what I know how to write my scripts, by the way, as does Rena, but, um, but I know how to write my scripts, but you know, I don't know what it's like to be in that lived experience. I I always think it's funny when, when I hear that like rooms that used to be run by like white men back in the day Mm -hmm. used to hire like 10 more white men. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm like, I don't, the idea of like wanting to staff a room full of people that are exactly like me makes Mm -hmm. no sense to me. Like I want people who are different than me and talk about the world. Like it's, because I can't go live on a, on a ski resort in Utah, mm-hmm. like I want to, I want to bring Sam Brooks into the room who can tell mm-hmm. me about what it's like to live at a ski resort. Right. <laughs> so write that script that that shows me your life experience, that shows mm-hmm. me that voice, and talk about that in the room with me. Hmm. Um, you know, I really want to know who the person is. I want to know, you know, what they've learned from other shows that they've been on. Mm-hmm. I will, I always call references. That's really important to me. Hmm. Um, make sure that you make great friends everywhere you go. So you have references because mm-hmm. it's a really small town. People will know <laughs> you were not kind or, uh-huh. you know, did, did something that people did not enjoy on your previous show. There's mm-hmm. always of course, a chance to make amends, but do your best to like really keep your nose clean because mm-hmm. people will find out one way or another in terms mm-hmm. of what they can say or not say. I mean, I really appreciate it when the person comes in and says, look, I really want to help you make the best possible show. Mm-hmm. Here's why I'm excited about your show. Here's why it's about your idea. Here's why mm-hmm. I can be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. When the person makes it entirely about themselves and their voice, mm-hmm. that's great, by the way. Bless them. I'm so happy that they have a voice and that mm-hmm. they have a sense of self. I want them to bring that to the room. I want to know how that is mm-hmm. going to facilitate this show that I'm running and if they don't know how to do that then I feel like they should bless go create their own show mm-hmm. um so I think it's really important to make sure that you're constantly hitting why your life experience yes your voice is important yes you are important but how does that inform the show how does mm-hmm. that inform how you right. so right. always bring it back to the show yeah that makes sense so home before dark and Dolores Roach are both uh Apple TV and Prime respectively but you've also worked with ABC, CW, a bunch of others. So how does your experience differ? You touched on this a little bit earlier, but can you go a little deeper on how does your experience differ kind of working in one medium versus the other? Um, so they have a lot more time to develop something for streaming. Mm-hmm. And mostly that's a good thing, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of times that go awry where it's like they have like a little too much time and people start to second hmm. guess uh, decisions <laughs> right. that they've made. I think that's just, you know, any of us who get into this business probably have a certain amount of anxiety. So that's totally <laughs> What do you mean? I don't know what you're uh, talking yeah, about. No, 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 you're fine. You're <laughs> kind of resort hanging out. Um, so, so I think that that's a difference. I think, you know, I liked the speed of network, but I do think that there's something really great about having the time to like really work through something. I also, mm-hmm. the story, the story breaking is very different, mm-hmm. um, particularly because post Studio 60, once I got to ABC and then I think even now NBC does things this way, um, they put, you have to write things in six acts instead of four acts. So 
What was so organic mm -hmm. about four act structure for television is it's the same as, I mean, any other story that we're mm -hmm. seeing, particularly in features, right? So the first act is, you know, your first 25%, mm -hmm. act two and three. And at the bottom, by the way, of like, so act one is 25% and there's a big turn. And I always like to say it's Superman is hanging off a cliff, which is why you're going to stay and watch commercials mm -hmm. for Crest and Cars and Viagra and all the mm -hmm. other stuff. The job of network television is to keep you tuned in to watch those commercials mm -hmm. that they sold and then keep you till the top mm -hmm. of the next part. Right. And so, and then there's another big story turn at the bottom of two, another big story turn at the bottom of three. Mm -hmm. Each one of those then has commercial breaks in it. It's about mm -hmm. 45 minutes of television. So unless it's Studio 60 where you're talk, talk, talking very, very fast, those <laughs> are about 50, 52 pages mm -hmm. um, with these big, big, big turns. So then what happened was they realized they needed to make more money or they wanted to make more money because right. <laughs> you know, we're, we live in capitalism. That's fine. That's the structure that we have, uh, uh -huh. have subscribed to. Um, until apparently Vladimir Putin takes us all over. I don't know if he's happening in Ukraine right now. I've heard <laughs> bits and pieces of it. Yeah. I don't know. We're doing a podcast. Well, we're free outside. It's cool. No big deal. So, so they decided they wanted to sell more stuff and they made it six acts. And it's, it's much harder to break in six acts. A 52 mm. page script, oh. even a 40 whatever page script does not easily break into six acts. And it's also mm. not how our brains work organically. Mm -hmm. So if you watch an episode, obviously no shade degrees anatomy, they're amazing. 17 seasons of a show, I think is proof enough that like, mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm talking about. And they do. <laughs> but as a TV writer who came up in the business, I'm often looking at the structure of those shows and going, wow, there's like a sort of 15 minute first act so that you're hooked in and then there's a break and then there's like a like a 10 minute act and then there's a break and then there's a five minute mm. act usually there's some sort of limit i can't remember what it is on how short your act is allowed to be mm -hmm. but if you're ever watching an episode of network television and it feels like it's only been four minutes it probably has <laughs> um, because it's really hard to break story you know in a way that feels graceful mm -hmm. within that format and right. in streaming takes all the guesswork out of that. Mm -hmm. You don't, I still think what's really valuable about having learned how to break under that system, particularly like, again, the Studio 60 system of four acts is that I pretty much still break my shows even when they're, when they're streaming in mm -hmm. four acts um, mm -hmm. or in the case of Dolores, which is a half hour. So in that case, three acts, same with I Love Dick. But the idea is I break it knowing that at the bottom of each of these, there should be a really strong story turn. Mm -hmm. I really plot plot or character, ideally both. Mm -hmm. um, and it is something that spins the character in a different direction. Something the character wants just got taken away from them and why. Mm. And, and it's the same, you have to do the same thing at the bottom of each of those acts. Now, the good news is you don't have to create some sense of false jeopardy in the same way that you did in network television. Right. Oh my God, what's going to happen to Nathan Fillion? Okay, I guess I'll watch Crest and Cars in, in, right. in Niagara <laughs> again and then I'll make sure Nathan Fillion's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't have to put characters in, in any kind of jeopardy in that same way, mm -hmm. but I do have to make sure that I'm checking myself and that it's not just a conglomeration of scenes that people, right. you know, sitting in a basement and being clever with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's tough. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a tough, um, tough balancing act for sure. <laughs> so your newest show, the horror of Dolores Roach was just picked up by Amazon studios. Congratulations, by the way. Um, can you walk us through the process of getting that project across the line, the finish yeah, line slash yeah, start line, or whatever was, it is? <laughs> it, was, it was quite a process. Um, I we so while I was still on Home Before Dark, um, I got my hands on the podcast. My dear friend Brandy Rivers, who's uh, it goes back to again 
lots of doors for opportunity. Brandy Rivers was answering phones when I was answering phones. Mm -hmm. She ended up becoming a big time manager at industry. Mm -hmm. She represents Aaron Mark, who did the play and the podcast with Laura mm -hmm. She was like, you got to listen to this thing. My managers were also saying the same thing. Um, I listened to it. It is incredible. It's an update of the, the Penny Dreadful Sweeney Todd tale. Mm. Uh, turned on its ear somewhat where hmm. uh, where the demon barber is actually female and she's Latina and she mm. goes back to Washington Heights where she's from. Uh, and um, I, I listened to it. It was this dark, twisted, funny tale. Hmm. And I went in to meet with Aaron Mark uh, and basically just hit it off with him immediately and said, look, I, I love to supervise projects because I think it takes two things I'm really good at, which is writing and show running and mm -hmm. teaching hmm. and sort of amalgamates them. And I just want to be helpful to you. And mm -hmm. we dug each other. He gave me the gig. I ended up leaving home before dark during season two mm -hmm. and working entirely on the horror of Dolores Roach. We wrote a pilot that the first week of the pandemic, we saw <sighs> over zoom when nobody knew we were like, what the hell is zoom? Um, we, we sold it over zoom when no one knew what zoom was to Amazon. They, because it was a pandemic, uh, knew they couldn't shoot it right away. Everything mm -hmm. had to shut down at that point. So they ordered three scripts. Mm -hmm. We had a little mini room with Aaron and me and Daphne Rubin Vega, who originated the part both on Broadway and in the podcast, uh, and our, our writer's assistant, Mariah Wilson, who, like I said, is the young mm -hmm. staff writer now on right. the season of the show. And um, we did the three scripts. Amazon loved them. It was still a pandemic. They asked us mm -hmm. if we could pilot it. We did. Um, and we shot that last summer in between, mm -hmm. like, you know, lockdowns, uh, which was super right. <laughs> uh, and then Amazon uh, dug it and picked it up to series. And so now we're in a writer's room where we're writing uh, seven mm. more and we're going to go back and shoot the rest of it this summer. So we're super excited. I mean, it, it's been, you know, given it because of the pandemic, it's been a two and a half year journey and I've gotten mm -hmm. to spend that entire journey with um, with my dear friend Aaron and mm -hmm. and Justina Machado and mm. uh, this this crazy character of Dolores Roach. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, when will listeners be able? Do you have any idea when listeners will be able to I check don't think it out? I'm supposed to say so. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop asking. Not this um, summer. I'll be later than this summer. Fair enough. <laughs> um, all right. That seems like a great place to start to wrap up. Before I ask my last question, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at badass mom writer. Um, <laughs> and I'm on Instagram, but don't really check it that much. So feel free. It's just at Dara Resnick. Uh, you'll see that I'm mostly a lurker. So feel free to find <laughs> me and, and take a look at what I've posted, but I don't tend to post too, too much over there. I'm a writer. My medium is words. And so mm -hmm. Twitter is constantly calling to me. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. My final question. I always call this your screenwriter survival tip. So what is the number one thing you would tell a young screenwriter listening to this to help them not only survive, but thrive in this industry? So I'm going to give a piece of advice that I actually hope that not a ton of people have given. I think it's something people are scared to talk about in our okay. capitalist structure and society, okay. which is money. Mm -hmm. which is do your best to live deeply within your means. I think mm -hmm. it's really tempting when you're a young screenwriter or assistant out there to feel like you have to like go out to dinners all the time and wear a certain kind of clothes and drive a certain mm -hmm. kind of car. And you have to have this, this sort of veneer of look how great everything mm -hmm. is going. But I can promise you that the reality is most people also can't afford to do a lot of those 
things. And if you invite somebody over to your house for a cheap $10 bottle of wine and to talk about a project, they'll be really happy. You'll get to know each other better. Mm -hmm. And learning how to live within your means, learning how to sell a project and bank all of that money enables you to make creative decisions Mm -hmm. that people who are constantly living paycheck to paycheck and kind of showing off about their car and their house and their clothes Mm -hmm. and and all that other sort of Hollywood stuff don't get to make. Mm So that's my big piece of advice that I, you know, I I can give you advice about trying to write more or create opportunities or Mm -hmm. all of that. Live within your means, save your money. It Mm -hmm. helps you be as creative as possible in a structure that does not facilitate that. Yeah, that is, that's brilliant and makes so much sense. And it is definitely not something we've had on this podcast before. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate you going outside the box and it was very Mm -hmm. helpful. Um, All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this chapter of Screenwriter Survival Guide. If we are delivering any insight or value to you, please drop us a comment on YouTube, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow so you can get every new chapter as it airs. Our second full season is just over the horizon. I cannot wait to officially announce what we're going to be covering in it. I am so excited. In the meantime, you can find this show online at screenwritersurvivalguide.com, and you can find me on Instagram at Sam Brooks Presents. Until next time, guys, don't just survive, thrive. Thank you.